0: Carolyn Farrell, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Your new novel is Dear Miss Metropolitan. It's out now, and it is landing almost 25 years after your first book, which was a story collection. So before we talk about Dear Miss Metropolitan, can I ask what you've been doing?
1: Absolutely. You know, that's so funny that you asked that when I read that uh, remark in Dwight Garner's review, Mm -hmm. which I'm massively grateful for, Mm -hmm. Um, I thought, oh, 25 years. Well, the most obvious answer is that I've just been raising my kids. I had my son the year Don't Erase Me, my first book, my story collection came out, and I was working on a novel, and I remember a writer saying to me, wow, you're you're writing a novel with a newborn baby? And I was like, how hard can that be? So of course, 25 years later, so in the meantime, I had a, a daughter also, and it's not that I stopped writing. I've always been writing, but I've just been publishing mainly short stories. I did Publish a couple of times in Plowshares and Story Magazine and in various anthologies. I mean, I'd say I probably published maybe seven or eight things in that time. I published essays. So I have been kicking. I've been alive and kicking in that time. I did actually write a novel and I wrote it over a period of years and it just was not going anywhere. And I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to write about. I had. I thought I was gonna write a novel about slavery, and I think everything that I write is about slavery in some way, but the novel just didn't go anywhere. And once it finally was pronounced dead and put in its sarcophagus, I just kind of went back to writing short stories. I really consider myself a story writer. Dear Miss Metropolitan was, I don't wanna say it was a fluke, because I began thinking about it in terms of stories and voices. But I have to say, I did not set out to start writing a novel. I was just really thinking about, as a working mother, what can I get done? You know, Alice Monroe writes about this, about you know, having her children under the table and kicking them out of the way. I pretty much did the same sort of thing, but I had to work outside. I taught at Sarah Lawrence. I still teach at Sarah Lawrence. So a lot of demands on my time.
0: Let's set up Dear Miss Metropolitan. For listeners who haven't seen the rave reviews in the New York Times, the book is inspired by the kidnappings in Cleveland in the early aughts?
1: Yes. And I have to say, before the book came out, I was very frightened of this very question because Mm -hmm. I did not want to base the novel on the Ariel Castro story. At the time I started this book in 2013, that was certainly a crime that captivated everyone. Mm But there were other horrific crimes like this man in Austria who imprisoned his daughter. There were these stories of captivity. They did provide a kind of grim inspiration. But in terms of the actual victims of Ariel Castro's crimes, I knew I could not write a true crime story. And I knew I I couldn't fictionalize people who were still alive. But when I heard about those girls, and I, of course, heard about them at the same time everyone else did when they were freed, I just couldn't understand how girls could go missing for such a long time. You know, maybe that's my naivete, but where was the community in looking for them? And these girls in particular, I think in real life, two of them had parents who were actively searching them, but one of them didn't. And they just kind of faded from view. And this is not to ascribe that to the families, but just from the public eye, they faded from view. And that sense of urgency that there are around other missing children, usually white girls, was really not here with these girls, I found. I didn't do any research for the novel. I didn't research true crime, but I found my inspiration in sort of small corners. Like Edward P. Jones has this wonderful story, Adam Robinson Acquires Grandparents and a Little Sister. And there's a small detail in that story about a black mother whose son, her young young son goes missing and she goes to the police and tries to get a response. And they're like, well, he just ran away, he'll come back. And they are pretty lukewarm in their response to the mom and so she goes to a halfway house of convicts, ex-cons rather, and she enlists their help. And together with the community members, these ex-cons go and they actually find the boy who's been abducted. And it's a, it's a small scene. It's a tiny scene in the story. But someone says, well, now we have to turn to criminals to do the police's work. And that really struck to me. First of all, what is the community owe to the victims of these kinds of crimes? How does the community solve these kinds of crimes? But I also was interested in voices that were heard and taken seriously versus those that weren't. And I, I've spoken about this elsewhere. I, I watched one of, one day, I, you know, I don't usually watch true crime shows at mm-hmm. all. They're, they're too scary for me. But I did watch uh, a show and I don't remember what it, what it was, but there was a black sex worker on it. A, a woman who had been kidnapped and held hostage with other sex workers in in this man's basement. She managed to convince this man that she loved him and he eventually took her out and he allowed her to go to a gas station. And uh, she was a black woman. She ran to two cops, two detectives who happened to be there. And she said, can you help me? And I was stunned that they didn't take her seriously. They were like, She's drunk. She's a prostitute. She's a hooker. Who, who cares? And she was saying, you have to help me. And she was begging them for like 10 minutes. The The show was narrated by the actual person who had been kidnapped. And I was just stunned that they didn't take this seriously. They were laughing about it. And then finally, they went with this woman and they discovered this house with these women locked up in the basement. There was even, someone was dead in the basement and they arrested the man. And afterwards, they have shone a spotlight on this woman, and she said, well, now I'm happily married, and I just wondered, what do you do with that trauma? What do you do with the, your personal trauma, but what do you do with the trauma of the community, the, the people who are supposed to be taking care of you, not listening to you, not taking you seriously, not hearing you? And that was a real inspiration for me for Dear Miss Metropolitan. So all of these things kind of came together, and I started writing.
0: Fern, Gwyn, and Jacenia are the three girls whose voices are incredibly distinct. They are the kidnapped victims. They are tortured by a character called Boss Man. And they are beautiful and smart, and it is harrowing to be part of their world. But their voices are unforgettable, absolutely unforgettable. And they're very distinct. Fern is the first girl who's kidnapped. Gwyn is the second, and Jacenia is the third. Did they show up in that order for you? Or did you just start writing and did you start with imagery and then the voices came? That's a
1: really good question. I learned about Ariel Castro and I just sat down to write and I wrote the scene where the girls are fighting about the bra, which comes towards the end of the book. So they're held captive in this house Everything is a kind of strange, fragmented reality uh, for them. They've come from a strange, fragmented reality of their homes. They're now in a much more horrific reality. And then when they're liberated, they don't know how to make sense of the fragmentation of the how is it that there's a black president? What's an iPhone? How come this phone has a big face on it? They're just puzzled. And for me, it was so important that I really inhabit their characters and see the world the way they saw it. And I knew that I had to see the world in three different ways for these characters. I mean, they do have commonalities, but I want my readers to identify with them. I want them to identify with them. And for that to happen, I just had to see the world through their eyes and really inhabit their voices and really think about the ways they use language to reflect this kind of fragmented outside and fragmented inside. I really thought a lot about voice because everyone is struggling together, but their their struggles are also so individual. And I often teach my students a really great essay by Richard Russo uh, called Location, Location, Location. And it's all about how setting is a character. And he has this section in this essay where he talks about universality. And he says, you know, the more specific you are, the more universal the experience. And my students, they usually get it, but sometimes they ask, you know, well, why isn't it the opposite? You know, the more general you are, then everyone can kind of identify with it. And of course, that's not true. The more specific it is, the more you will have uh, people read, identify, relate. And so that's Kind of what I thought about with the voices, you know, they had to be specific so that people would hopefully recognize something. And of course, you know, hopefully not the experience, but something in the way the character saw the world that was really specific, but also universal.
0: Well, Fern is very much the, the older sister to everyone. She's the responsible one. She's the one who just wants to make sure everyone's OK. And Gwyn is the... The middle child always trying to fight and saying, well, why aren't we trying to escape? Why are we staying here? This is ridiculous. Why are we still here? We've got to get out. And Jessenia kept breaking my heart because she kept trying to defend what boss man was doing and saying to the other girls, well, if you just know him the way I know him, or he'll give you a chance, or he's told me I'm allowed to leave. And if I don't like it here, my boyfriend's going to come get me. And we find out quite a lot about Jacenia's boyfriend as the story goes. They were the heart of the book for me reading Dear Miss Metropolitan is an experience that's not unlike reading The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. It's not unlike reading The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. And I know those comparisons have been made. I'd really like to ask you about the structure because you've got photos in here. Some of the chapters are lists. Some of them are questions. Some of them are narrative pieces that reveal more of the girl's stories, backstories to us. And I know you mentioned wanting to sort of start from a story structure and voice and making time to write as you're raising tiny people. But I also kept thinking of that riff from Baldwin about writing about trauma and how, in the especially in the later essays, he's using a fractured point of view to make the trauma more evident for readers. Right. Just to
1: backtrack a little Mm -hmm. bit, that's a really, really powerful thought. I remember when I read The Bluest Eye for the first time. And I think that's the first book of Toni Morrison's I ever read. And Mm -hmm. I was blown away. I was devastated. And I've read it several times since then. But one thing I always think about with real trauma, really horrific events, a question that guided me with this book is how much is too much? You know, how much... How much trauma can a reader take? And it was really important for me not to let the the horrifics overwhelm the reader. I had this wonderful writing teacher, Lindsay Abrams, who said every character needs an escape hatch. And I was always thinking about that escape hatch with Fern, Gwenny, and Jacenia. And I think the use of this amalgam of media and literary forms... For me, that spoke to this escape hatch in a way. And it's its not that I want to turn away. I, I want people to look at what they have experienced, and I want people to feel for them. But I would like my audience to see these, these girls as, as not symbolic characters, but as real, living, breathing girls. I talk a lot with my students about how... We become desensitized. People feel like I'm so desensitized. You know, school shootings, racial violence, anti-Semitic violence, anti-Asian violence. You know, we're we're just desensitized, and yet we can't be desensitized. And I I thought about yes, we are desensitized, but what about the people for whom that is not an option, who are living that all the time? It's such a delicate balance because invoke James Baldwin, I don't want this to be a protest novel. I want this to be a novel that people can sink into and become frightened by and also relate and love and hopefully laugh. I wanted a lot of humor in there also. I didn't want to teach people a lesson. I don't want my characters to teach lessons either. You And so that was one of the reasons I felt that adding all of these voices from newspapers and from people but from literature was so, so important. You know again it goes back to this narrative strategy of fragmentation. I saw it as a way to really to grant humanity to the characters in the book. We have this community, for example, like if I think about Miss Metropolitan and her her lady friends in their community, they're not really loved. They're not loved by their families. They're sort of seen as these kind of relic crones who are just sort of busybodies. And I wanted to generate sympathy for them as well. I mean, they are, you know, you mentioned that they were like a Greek chorus, and that's exactly what I was going for, that they speak for the community, and I thought about Miss Miss Metropolitan as sort of being an everywoman. She's an individual, but she's also representative of this community that let the girls down. She knows something is wrong. She knows that something is going on in this house across the street, but she doesn't really allow herself to get involved or to think the worst. So I thought about that a lot. You know, I, I didn't want them to be silly old women that you could be dismissed because they were dismissed by their families, and they were People didn't care about them, so we care about them, but we also see this massive struggle that they have. It, it's sort of like survivor's guilt. How did we How did we not see what was happening? You, why can we still go on? And I think for Miss Metropolitan, she actually can't go on. you just devastated her. It, her life really doesn't have meaning in a way because she, she didn't do the right thing, and she feels... And I'm really kind of projecting her feelings. This is not how I feel about her, but that she is just so consumed with guilt and having to go to Jamaica, to the loony bin, as the others call it, in Jamaica Hospital. She can't deal with, with her, her culpability, her responsibility in all of this. Something that, you know, I just, it's not that I just realized, but I also wanted Bossman to not be 150% evil. I didn't want him to be 100% evil. It was okay if he was 99.9%, but it's so important that all the characters have dimension. And even in his messed up way, he had to have some dimension. So I brought in the story of his mother, and not that it excuses him, but that it just shows boss man in a certain fullness that uh, elevates him from being a a stock or symbolic character. The other day I was flipping through the TV and I was on HBO and I remembered, and I'm going to blank on the name of the series about the Mormon family with...
0: No, it's Bill Pax. Yes.
1: I watched that avidly with, you know, shock and horror. It, the same sort of feeling. You know, Are these women actually making decision, informed decisions? Are they being controlled? I asked a lot of questions and I, I found it really well written. One of the things that, that stuck with me was that the, the character that Chloe Sevigny played always called him boss man. And I was like, wow, that's such a great name. It's not the best name to give your husband, the man you love, you're supposed to be, you're deferential. She was so irreverent and she called him bossman, and that always stuck with me and I think that there are parallels to be made. They're not the same situation but that always stuck in my head so I guess that was a kind of inspiration too was these women who think they have power but they may not have power but maybe they do. It's it's very complicated. And I felt that that show was trying to show all of these characters in their dimension. But I love that she called him Bossman. Bossman was really a mean name for for her husband.
0: (laughs) I just looked it up. The show is Big Love.
1: (laughs) Big Love, of course.
0: The women, and not just Fern and Gwen and Jessimia, but their mothers, And the ladies in the neighborhood and Miss Metropolitan herself. I want to go back to something you said earlier. They think they have power. They think they have responsibility. They think they can control the outcome of their situations. And yet the reader sees that this is not true. The reader sees that they do not have agency. And Fern's mother's story is tragic, and Gwyn's mother's story is tragic. And while Jacinia's mother's story is not tragic, Jacinia has clearly learned some patterns of behavior that do not serve her well. And especially when it comes to seeing herself in relation to a man and where right. she fits, and motherhood certainly for her is extremely important. We learn more about the women in the community and we do about the men, the men are all missing. Right. They're missing, or they're transitory, or they are really bad boyfriends. Right. That's not to say that there aren't good men. I mean, one comes back, and I'm, I was very happy to see him again. I'm very glad to know that he was still amongst the living. I'm not going to spoil it for people. But what are we as women teaching other women?
1: That's a really good question. And I thought a lot about double standard. I would say one thing that I think I didn't know it at the time as I was writing, but in retrospect, I think I was thinking a lot about religion and how each character has some kind of interaction with religion. And religion, I was not raised in a religious household, but the way I saw religion, it was a way to belong. And it was also a way to organize your life. If you just did these things, you would be happy. Things would work out if you just did these things. And I think each one of these girls gets that message in their own way. Fern, probably the least, but certainly uh, Gwenny and Jusenia. Organized religion is supposed to organize you. And it doesn't. It doesn't organize. It doesn't organize Gwenny. It doesn't organize Jusenia. They have to kind of, once they are held in captivity, they have to kind of create their own religion. And that religion is sort of related to world building. You know, they have to build their own world. They make their own language. They're like God, they name things, they name the rooms, they name the the apparitions, the mice, etc. But I was thinking a lot about how when you live by certain rules and when the rules don't work, I don't think that this was in my mind as I was writing, but certainly it was in the background all of these horrors about the Catholic Church and sex abuse. And I've spoken to people who, that has nothing to do with the religion. That has nothing to do with the religion, you know. And then I've spoken to people who are like, I renounce my faith. It's so complicated. It's so complex. But that idea that all you need to do is go to this church or this place place of worship and your life will be organized. You just have to follow those rules. I I thought about well, what happens when you follow those rules and and you're not happy. Things don't work out. So I don't know if I I meant the girls to be free thinkers, but they have to be. They have to kind of put the rules and lessons of their mothers uh, to the test. That kind of ran through my mind as as I was writing. And I, you know, again, I I didn't set out to write about Religion, it just kind of popped in intuitively as a way of, you know, how can we organize our lives? So, how can we be happy? How can we be happy? Well, if I just follow all these rules, I'm going to be happy. So, what happens when that doesn't happen? Right.
0: It also seems to me that religion is a cure for loneliness for these women, and that all of these women, whether it's the mothers or the women in the community or the girls themselves, everyone is so lonely. There's a really powerful moment when the girls realized that there are now three of them. It went from just being Fern for however long and then Gwyn and and now Fern and Gwyn realize there's a third girl. And it's almost as if she's magic. She's a fairy tale come to life. And it seems to be the same thing. For Fern's mother, she needs boyfriends. She can't be alone. Gwyn's mother needs the witnesses because she needs to not be alone anymore. Right. And Jacenia is just let down by so many people, even though her mother is sort of the most active participant and wants to be a part of her daughter's life and her daughter's just being a teenager.
1: Right, right. And
0: anyone who's been a teenage girl knows that complicated is where it kind of starts and and to have a mother who's willing to dig in and say I'm here and yet Jasenia has internalized so many other pieces of the community and of the message and the just be organized and do this and go to school and and excel and then you can have these things but she's also decided that having a boy is very important to her and you know having a boyfriend and and having a child with that boy.
1: Jasenia one of the things I was thinking about with her is that yes yeah, she does have for lack of a better word good Role models at home. She has uh, Cindy and Manny who love each other, and they have this particular relationship. But with her, I came back to this idea of not being heard, not really being seen. And there is a there's a path that you have to take in life to be happy. You know, you have to do all of this. She goes to this gifted school and. What happens if you veer off that path? One of the things I was thinking about for all of these girls is that the path is so narrow. You cannot take a step off of that path. If you do, you're gonna be kidnapped. Their paths are just really, they're like tightropes. They're not even paths. And you truly have to toe the line. You cannot make one misstep. And how difficult it is to live a life like that where you can't make a misstep, where you can't learn from your mistakes. Things have to be in order. Right.
0: Yeah, there are no second chances until there really is a second chance for these girls. Right, right. But the women, for want of a better, the community ladies, the Greek chorus, they don't get second chances. Right. Miss Metropolitan doesn't get second chances. Right. Fern and Gwynnie do. There's a baby right. who gets a second chance, and the story jumps ahead to 2039. And I'm dancing around it a little bit. Because it's not necessarily a surprise, but the way the baby shows up and her experience of the world before the women are freed, it says a lot about the characters that I think readers should experience for themselves. I know we've been talking about the fragmented structure of the book, but you're also running two stories on parallel tracks where you've got the trauma of the kidnappings and the torture and the day-to-day until the girls are freed, but also the trauma of their lives before, the loneliness, there is some abuse for some of them. At one point you say, you can be a ghost before you actually die, but who would believe a girl becoming a victim before her time? Right. These girls are really smart. They know that their lives could be something different. And it's more the environment, it's more circumstance that keeps them from being able to achieve. And yet as a culture and as a society, we make judgments about the values of black and brown girls, especially when they go missing. Right, And that's part of what this community is wrestling with. And that's part of the shock that the Greek chorus of ladies and Miss Metropolitan feel. Right. How did we not know this was happening in our own community? We're not those kinds of people. We live a certain kind of way. We are faithful. We go to church. And yet they missed it all. And it was exactly across the street. Right,
1: right. I really like that formulation that there are these narrative strands. I also thought about the future and mm-hmm. what happens once they are free. Because when, when I first began uh, Dear Miss Metropolitan, I structured it as a pretty linear narrative. The first draft mm-hmm. of this novel, I thought, well, the story is beginning, middle, and end. Kidnap, captivity, freedom. And so I wrote that pretty linearly. And when I got to the end, it was only 100 pages. I said, okay, what's next? And I realized that there were all these detours that needed to be in there, all these voices, all of these other paths. And you would think perhaps that once they are freed, life would be good. And of course, that is not the case. There's still this danger of exploitation. And I, you know, brought in the TV psychologist. <laughs> you know? Now that the girls are free, you know, the world looks at them like, OK, now what do we do with you? And it's Miss Refuge, their social worker, who becomes much more to them than that she's always looking for that kind of positive pop psychology you know believe in yourself you can do it and and her heart is really in the right place i really wanted her to be this positive force but there's so much that the girls wrestle with that i think the world just doesn't want to know about it anymore it's just too painful you're you're safe you're you're rescued why think about all of this stuff why think about this quirky language that you made up why think about the devastation, the torment. And, you know, just to return for a minute to the idea of how much is too much to give to the reader, I wanted to intimate a lot about the violence and not just kind of hit the reader over the head with like, you know, okay, then this happened and then this happened, but just to give these intimations, because I really thought that that was scary enough. I did actually take things out at the suggestion of my agent and editor but I thought about it a lot. How can I get across their experience? Their experience is so uncomfortable. We do want to have a happy ending. We don't want to think about their torment. Something else that occurred to me with these girls is that, and I think that they realize it, they have a duty to other people's feelings first, almost. They have to take care of other people's feelings. And that's a really difficult position for them to be in because they have so much they still have to work out. But the world is kind of this TV psychologist, Dr. Ezra, wants to cure them. And Miss Refuge has her own thoughts about how they can be happy and healthy. They have to kind of take care of other people's feelings before they take care of their own. And one of the reasons why I kind of went so far into the future, because, you know, the idea that trauma and grief will end with, with you know, liberation is as we know, ridiculous. It goes on. It's, I wanted to show how these characters could navigate that trauma and grief, those bad memories. How can they navigate that and, and heal and lead as they used to say in the old days, lead productive lives? Well, it doesn't mean that they're gonna get a job, but they're going to they're gonna look at their lives as being lives filled with meaning. That boss man was not the
0: definition of their lives. But also trauma and grief carry from generation to generation. Right, right. Every character in this book has a piece of a story that's theirs, but there is trauma and grief across all of it and decisions that get made because of people's inability or unwillingness to reckon with their trauma or their grief. And and I'm talking specifically about the adults. Certainly teenagers are teenagers and they're only available to do what they have sort of been taught or figured out how to do. But if their adults are unreliable, right. then where do they even start? How do they even trust? Trust is complicated enough under no- normal circumstances. And then you start to talk about trust and trauma. Right. <laughs> Trust and trauma is an entirely different equation. And I don't want people to get the idea that the book isn't hopeful. There are moments of hope. There are moments of great joy and love and compassion. This is not a relentless, where am I going with this? Dark, 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 dark. Yes, it's a dark story, but the flip side of that darkness is love And to a certain extent, the light of these girls.
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. Just to go back to what you were saying, I think that when you can't trust, when you don't know what to trust, it's sort of like... What we were, we were living in. You know, when we don't know what a a fact is, when we don't know what reality is, how do we make sense of the world? Mm -hmm. And for that reason, I think world building was so important for the girls. So so important Mm -hmm. to build their world, to construct this world out of their sort of ragtag pieces, and use that to make sense to make sense of their to make sense of their lives. Yeah, it's so so important.
0: You've taught for twenty plus years at Sarah Lawrence. What have your students taught you?
1: That's a really great question. I um, I think my students change me. I just don't know all the ways that they change me, but they certainly have. I think they've made me smarter. They've made me a better reader. You know, I always tell them when we get into a, a writing workshop, people always think it's, so you get your story critiqued and you get all these critiques and you, you're sort of queen for a day or king for a day. But what you're really getting out of a workshop is learning how to become a critical thinker and a a critic. You're learning how to critique and think about the world. And that, I think, is much more important than, you know, when you get your manuscript back, you're like, okay, what am I supposed to do with this now? But when you learn how to critique, when you learn how to read a story and read it not just for lot, but you read it for character, and you think about, oh, you know, the story is layered in so many ways, or this author is taking these kinds of risks. I go through the same process that my students go through. I always have to reread. I always come to the writers I love with fresh eyes. I think some of them, I know their work by heart, and yet I reread it and I'm like, oh, okay, I've just learned something new that has escaped me all of these years of teaching this, you know, so they definitely make me a better reader. They teach me about the world in so many ways. I mean, if I I had to use an example that puts me to shame is that I just hired a Sarah Lawrence graduate to do my social media and she's amazing. She's so great. Now I'm always on Facebook ranting and raving about things, but Instagram and Twitter I've kind of stayed away from because I just think, okay, if I go down that hole, I'm never going to resurface. And this student is just so savvy and wonderful and she's great and so i just look at the finished product i don't really want to know how to do it i just look at the finished product and i'm like wow i mean to be a person a young person in the world now with this social media and everything that it is doing and all of the people that you that you touch it's just it's mind-boggling to me i mean when i tell my kids how we did things in the olden days they're horrified they just think what a world before the internet is just not imaginable. Calling people up on the phone and having long conversations and having that long telephone cord wind around you, whoa, and life before answering machines, what purpose is there in living? It's, uh, I, my students always teach me about that, and I'm always grateful. They teach me about the world. It's, it's a favorite saying of old people to say, they keep me young, but that really is true. It's really true.
0: I know I mentioned The Bluest Eye and The Nickel Boys, but who are some of your personal literary influences?
1: One of my great influences is the writer Edward P. Jones. I feel like when you read his stuff, you learn how to write. You learn how to write, you learn how to read. And one thing that he taught me was really how to deal with difficult characters, how to deal with horrific characters. You're not supposed to sympathize with a murderer. You're not supposed to feel for the, and yet we totally feel for all of his characters. And they give us what you had mentioned before. I feel like his stories, even in their darkest moments, they do imbue us with a sense of of hope that we leave the stories and we don't think, oh my God, life has no meaning. We're just like, oh, there's hope. There is that escape hatch. There is that pointing in a different, in, a, in another direction. You, and it's something that I thought a lot about with Dear Miss Metropolitan. I did not want readers to, to just be on that trajectory of bleak, bleaker, bleakest. But that in these bleak moments, there is always hope. There is something that's keeping the girls alive physically, but spiritually, psychically. They, There's something that's going on and that was really important to me. So writers like Edward P. Jones, Alice Munro. If I think about a writer who also, you know, besides Toni Morrison, who's also a huge influence, the writer Gail Jones, her work can be pretty dark, but it's full of so much. It's full of storytelling. And I dare say it's full of hope as well. I love also writers like George Saunders. When you read his stuff, it's pretty dark. I'm thinking about *Escape from Spiderhead*, which is all about clinical trials, and it's his stuff and his student Nana Kwame Brenya, the author of *Friday Black*. When you read that stuff, you think, "Oh my God, that could never happen!" Now, and then it hits you: "Oh, okay, this is already happening." But these writers, they take these difficult, this difficult subject matter. And I don't want to say they make it palatable for us, but they help us to identify. They help us to sympathize. They help us to realize things. And I think that those those feelings are really profound when I read those writers. I just finished Dan Sean's novel, Ill Will, which was arguably the scariest book I've ever read in my life. I would never recommend people to read it at night. but. Talk about formal innovation. Talk about structure. I first read this book, and I'm a huge fan of Dan Sean's work, but I read this after Dear Miss Metropolitan was finished, and I feel like these two novels are like kissing cousins because they're just there is a, a formal element that they have in common. There's also a darkness, but there's also hope in, in, the, uh, in both books as well. He's a, a magnificent writer, and Ill Will is an amazing, amazing book,
0: but it's pretty scary, in a good way. (laughs) What do you want readers to know about Dear Miss Metropolitan?
1: I want readers to not be afraid to read the book. I want readers to not think, oh, this doesn't affect me. These, These girls are not in my radius. They're not important to me. I want readers to not only read the book, but to fall in love with the girls. I, I want the book to, to matter to people. I've been asked a lot, how much research did you do? Is this a true crime book? And I really, Kwame Ajibrenya had this really wonderful interview where he said, we really have to transcend genre. Genre is kind of a marketing tool. You know, we really have to think about our work as, in larger terms and more encompassing terms. And I would love for my readers not to pick up Dear Miss Metropolitan and think, oh, a brutal crime story. Pass. It has so much more to it. It has uh, compassion. It has humor. It has, above all, it has a lot of humanity in it, and humanity that people would maybe take for granted. When you see black and brown girls on the street, how often do you think about their humanity? How often does mainstream culture think about their humanity? Yeah, that's sort of what I would like people to just kind of go to Dear Miss Metropolitan with an open mind and an open heart.
0: Dear Miss Metropolitan has a big beating heart, and I really do hope that people will pick it up sooner rather than later. Carolyn Farrell, thank you so much. The new novel is Dear Miss Metropolitan, and it is out now.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.